Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Coming to you from behind clogged sinuses, this is your friendly neighborhood Pediatric Infectious Disease Doc and Researcher, Dr. Santosh. Happy Respiratory Viral Season, Josh. <laughs> Happy Flu Season, Santosh. <laughs> I got my flu shot, and then my kids made me sick. <laughs> shots, 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 shots. Da, 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 da. Isn't there like some kind of hip song about that? <laughs> Wouldn't that be awesome if when you went to your pediatrician's office, the entire staff was back there just going, shots, shots, shots. children looking just freaked out parents just nodding knowingly but somber well before we bring down the house i have to ask santosh if you're feeling under the weather hasn't swati been taking care of you perhaps making some tea or growing something from that garden she just started (laughs) you know it's funny that you say that um, like, she'll bring me something nice and warm to drink, and then, like, she'll abruptly be like, oh, no, that one's mine, and she'll, like, give me another one. Uh, what's your point? Oh, oh, nothing. I just, I figured we'd never quite managed to finish the modern poisons section, uh, that we began talking about last week, and, oh, I, I don't know, it just crossed my mind for no good reason. <laughs> like, we should do this episode, and then maybe I should call my and just remind her how much you love her so she doesn't poison you. Right! And, and how very, very low our life insurance policy is. <laughs> like, I'm worth more to you alive than dead. Let me make that abundantly clear. She's an aerospace engineer. She has access to propellants. It's my fault that I keep forgetting that it's our anniversary, then her birthday. Oh, God. <laughs> Well, for those of you worried at home, Santosh's wife is almost certainly probably not poisoning him. No, no, no. We we have a wonderful relationship, and I love her. But if she were ever going to... (laughs) 
Oh, God. Does she listen to this podcast? But if she were ever going to, we're going to do a follow-up episode on poisons, talking about the modern poisons that are used, so Santosh, as well as you folks at home, know what kind of things to look for. Once again, standard disclaimer, we do not endorse or encourage any sort of poisoning of anybody. (laughs) That's some good disclaiming, Dr. Josh. Thank you. I disclaimed it myself. It has been disclaimed. But... (laughs) So, just a a brief reminder that the very first toxicologist, being the study of of poisons and toxins, was Paracelsus, and true name, Theophrastus Philippus Aureolus Bombastus von Hohenheim, the father of toxicology, and we learned all about how the dose makes the poison, and how many elements, or classic things, are secretly both good and terrible for you. We also learned a lot about the vast plant conspiracy and how most vegetarians are doing the world a valuable service by killing all the plants that are out to get us. If a plant is trying to live, if you know, either make a flower or a fruit or find some way to reproduce, you know, it can't just be grazed down by a goddamn herbivore that wants to come by and just destroy it. Yep. So, let's start by everybody's favorite method of self-poisoning, alcohol. Only problem is, alcohol, while it has its own issues, is not the most dangerous thing you can ingest. And in fact, sometimes people who are a little too enthusiastic about their alcohol consumption can be confused into taking another very common poison. So, Santosh, do you want to tell us what that drink is that we are all intimately familiar with from medical school. Uh, you're, t- you're referring to ethyl alcohol, which is the one that's in all of our distilled spirits and beers and wines and whatnot, which make us so happy. Yeah, from whiskey to apple teenies, ethyl alcohol is where it's yeah. at. Now, if we get into, rather than ethyl alcohol, if we get into methyl alcohol, or more commonly known as methanol, uh, we all of a sudden go from something that mildly toxifies our liver and gives us some beautiful disinhibition in our central nervous system. We go all the way to it's going to blind you, destroy your liver, kidneys, hearts, make your lungs fill with fluid, and kill you. Also, if you have corpses in it long enough, it will make about half of medical students incredibly hungry. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah yeah this we're, we're one carbon away from just pure death and or cannibalism <laughs> where did you come up with this that it makes you hungry you telling me you never left the anatomy lab and you were just starving <laughs> so you're talking about the fixative uh methanol being one of them that they use to preserve uh, the, the bodies of those wonderful people who donated their bodies so that we could learn anatomy. Okay, look, um, all, all I want to tell you and our listeners is if you search formaldehyde, does formaldehyde make you hungry? There, no. is, there is evidence, granted from a long time ago, that it induces okay. a specific kind of hunger, like a sodium appetite when injected 
in rats. And there are a lot of people who have mentioned that being around formaldehyde and formalin does tend to stimulate. I mean, you don't walk out saying, you know what, I could go for some Brazilian barbecue. But (laughs) it does make you have the same sensation of like hunger pangs. And just Google it, all right? Do do the research yourself. I can't be looking this stuff up for you all the time. Welcome to another educational podcast, kids. I think Dr. Josh has a, had a bit of a long day. <laughs> I know we've gotten way off No, no, topic, that's totally cool. So but... methanol is also used as a fixative in biological samples. You're absolutely right. Formalin is a combination of formaldehyde and an alcohol. Could be methanol. It's very possible. Yeah, you could get some uh, hungry medical students. Uh, for me, it just turned me off. I could not eat after going to the anatomy lab. But we'll tell you, methanol by itself, even though it, it can be quite pungent and most people wouldn't want to drink it, unfortunately can be used for poisoning and it'll actually uh, it'll shut down some very vital processes and kill you. Yeah, so it can cause, as we said, fatigue, headache, nausea, back pain, abdominal pain, dizziness, vomiting, like, you know, the whole rainbow of unpleasant things. And usually when people die from methanol ingestion, it tends to be from respiratory failure. Uh, A person can ingest methanol and not feel any symptoms for 12 to 24 hours, by which point it's usually too late to save them. In order to safely survive, a victim has to be treated within about two to three hours of ingestion. Now, methanol is not one of the more common poisons that people tend to use on others. Much more commonly, we see it in people who are homeless or people who are alcoholics and have not been able to get their hand on any actual alcohol, so they search for other things to drink. Sometimes that'll be antifreeze, sometimes it'll be paint remover, paint thinner, uh, perfume, and all of these Uh, often contain methanol, which, as Santosh mentioned, then gets metabolized into a toxic poison. Yeah, so we actually uh, have enzymes in our body which act on other molecules. That methanol actually gets converted to formaldehyde. And all of a sudden, uh, you've got formaldehyde then converted to formic acid. um, And this inhibits uh, the very parts of your mitochondria not metachlorians now, mitochondria. So you actually can't even use the oxygen that you're breathing. So this is how it poisons you. Now, I will say that for people who are acutely poisoned, they can go down very quickly and it can be a very acute poison. However, the people who are drinking it slowly because it's a substitute for booze that they can find, they might have a more slow poisoning where they actually, first you can destroy the optic nerves So you actually start to go blind, and then you have slow, slow CNS depression, and then if you have an overdose, you can die. So, when uh, your wife brings you that cocktail, Santo... (laughs) Well, uh, thing the first, I don't drink. That would already be the first one. (laughs) That would be quite weird. However, that is not the only household item that you could be poisoned with. There's also oxalic acid which you'll find in, again, paint removers, fabric bleachers. It's used in the uh, toilet bowl cleaners. And 
because, as I've mentioned before, plants are out to kill us. Uh. It also is in the leaves of rhubarb. Now, Santosh, you grew up in the Midwest. Sure. So you're probably familiar with the absolutely delicious strawberry rhubarb pie. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's one of my favorites, and yeah, you find it quite often in the fall. Yeah, so it, it's actually a late summer to early fall vegetable, which for some reason is not, I, I haven't come across on the coasts. Now, it has a bright red stalk. It looks like, you know, a hopped up angry version of celery. And the stalks themselves are a little bit tart and high in sugar and delicious for cooking, but the leaves are incredibly poisonous. The oxalic acid in them leaches calcium from the blood. Now, during World War I, when food shortages really got bad, people had to be pretty creative with recipes, and they used to substitute things like chalk and rhubarb leaves which will no. <laughs> people. Which and, is why we only use the stalk well, of rhubarb and the root, not the leaves anymore. Yeah. Interestingly, the docs, before we go into the actual effects of oxalic acid, the doctors that tend to treat oxalic acid poisoning the most are veterinarians because a lot of animals will get into both household cleaners as well as you know your local garden where you may have rhubarb leaves or other very poisonous kinds of plants and stems. So veterinarians use chalk to neutralize the acid, and we go back to those clever Brits. It's a trick that's also suggested in a few rare recipes for human consumption. You know, add two parts rhubarb leaves to <laughs> one part chalk. Don't stop eating the poison. Just alter the recipe. Hey, man, the dose makes the poison, right? You know, now that we know that oxalic acid can be found in a whole bunch of cleaners, what does it actually do to you? It actually precipitates as calcium oxalate, and that can accumulate not only in your joints, cause a kind of gout, but it will uh, it will cause big kidney stones and actually block your kidneys. So you, you can't pee, everything backs up and you go into kidney failure. Right. So as we said, it leaches the calcium out of your body, and when it does that, it kind of concentrates and forms into these little kidney stones, of which the most common type is calcium. It can be extremely destructive to any of your mucous membrane tissues, so your esophagus, your gums, can cause burns if absorbed through the skin. Right, or so this is if the there's a bunch of this, you know, sitting around in a jug, and it gets aerosolized and you inhale it, or if it splashes. Right, and a lethal... Oral dose is as low as yeah, 15 think to about 30 a, grams. A gram is a paper clip for people out there, so it's not a lot. Yeah, so 15 mm-hmm. paper clips worth of oxalic acid or about 10 <laughs> pounds worth of rhubarb leaves if you're a horse. I will say that uh, the kidney stones, Josh, does remind me of another alcohol that we should mention. One of the toxins we find in, like, antifreeze but can also be like accidentally drunk by pets or small children, and that's ethylene glycol. The problem with it is it does taste very, very sweet. So instead of stopping drinking it and spitting it out like you would with methanol or ethanol, you're going to enjoy it. It's going to be tasty. It will turn into that crystal form of oxalate in your kidneys, shut your kidneys down, boom, you're dead. So why would something so deadly be so delicious? <laughs> well, it's uh, it's actually the 
the chemical structure of that, it, it actually mimics a little bit uh, simple sugars sometimes without the ring part. So it actually binds to receptors on our tongue, which makes it taste just like sweet. Uh, interestingly, uh, a lot of commercial radiator antifreeze people have just decided to add some fluorescein so that, get this, Josh, you can take a little handheld ultraviolet light and you can find a radiator leak by looking for the fluorescent shine. But if someone's accidentally ingested the antifreeze, you can also feel fear on their tongue by shining a little UV light on there and seeing if it glows. I like that you stuck out your tongue and shined a light on it, even though it's radio and none of us can see that. Yeah, I know. It'll also still throw up in your vomit or urine. <laughs> <laughs> no, because, <laughs> because the <laughs> because the fluorescent isn't processed and you pee it out, you'll have glow in the dark urine if you drink ethylene glycol. Please don't, don't drink, drink ethylene, ethylene glycol. glycol. <laughs> <laughs> because this is an episode on poisoning, I should mention one of the more common types of poisoning that people always accuse of ethylene glycol, and there's a pretty popular misconception that. You know, there are some unscrupulous wine growers who will add antifreeze or ethylene glycol to their product in order to cheaply sweeten otherwise shoddy wines. Now, this, of course, was famously done in a classic Simpsons episode yep. where Bart helps capture a French duo trying to pull such a scam. And while it is technically true that some winemakers in the 80s were caught adding sweetening agents they were adding diethylene glycol not ethylene glycol so even though you probably wouldn't want to chug a gallon of it it's nowhere near as harmful as its similarly named compound so if you are doing your own research you know after i just yelled at you because we're not teaching you everything <laughs> and you happen to stumble across a case of wine poisoning it was probably diethylene glycol added as a sweetener and not instinctively. Whereas if you wanted to actively poison somebody, you could do what the Borgias did and just add arsenic to wine. <laughs> it's so cool. We're just like a couple of carbon atoms away from like, you're okay to certain death. I think that's brilliant. The power of chemistry. And speaking of the power of chemistry, Santosh, are you familiar with a little known show called oh what was it something about there was breaking involved and a guy who knocks um are are we talking about malcolm in the middle i love that show that was probably the one right the one about the guy (laughs) with the meth and (laughs) all right fine that's enough fun no, I'm. I am, of course, talking about the vastly overrated <laughs> Breaking Bad. While the show itself was full of incredibly unlikable characters, they did get the science right. So I will give them that. And one of the biggest poisons over the course of Breaking Bad, they came up with a variety of very creative ways <laughs> to kill people. One of the ones that really brought, you know, a, a spotlight to it was, of course, the poisoning of a young child on that show with ricin. In the old days, you could actually take, uh, you could boil the beans down or, or purify them and you could get castor oil. And the castor oil 
is actually a fantastic digestive propellant. <laughs> if if you are having any troubles with regularity about a teaspoon of castor oil and you will expel everything from your bowels that you've ingested from the last five years of life. So yeah, castor oil right. is what our parents used as both an emetic, yeah. meaning something to make us vomit, and a laxative, something to make yeah. us poop, because it was remarkably good at both of those. Now, ricin is naturally occurring in castor beans. So if just the plain bean itself is chewed and swallowed, even the small amount of ricin in that can cause some injury. And the actual chemical poison is made from the waste material left over once you've processed the bean. It can be in the form of a powder, a mist, a pellet. It can be dissolved in water or a weak acid. So it is a very effective poison in terms of sheer variety of ways to get it. Initially, depending on how you take it in, poisoning can occur as early as four to eight hours after exposure or as late as a full day. But following ingestion, initial symptoms will usually occur in under 10 hours. So if you inhale it, your symptoms will be respiratory. You'll have difficulty breathing, fever, cough, nausea, heavy sweating, as well as fluid building up in the lungs, which makes breathing even more difficult. And your skin can therefore turn blue from lack of oxygen. That's what we call cyanosis. Um, none of these would be immediately warning signs to a doctor that you've been poisoned with ricin. This is why taking a history is so important. But it causes a lot of these very dangerous things without a clear cause of it. In cases of known exposure to ricin, people are encouraged to immediately seek rest, uh, emergency care. Whereas if you ingest it, as happened on the show, if someone swallows a significant amount of ricin, they would initially develop vomiting and diarrhea, because remember, that's the same thing as castor oil, but in the concentration of ricin, that vomiting and diarrhea can quickly become bloody as your own intestines sort of slough themselves off. You can then get severe dehydration and low blood pressure and even seizures depending on how dehydrated and poisoned you are. Within about two to four days, you tend to see organ failure of the liver, spleen, and kidneys. And that tends to be the most common. Right. And we're talking about uh, five to 20 accidental beans. death from ricin is ingestion five rather than 20. inhalation. Beans. We told you guys before that we're talking about like 15 to 30 paper clips right. worth of weight of poison. Take it take a look here, guys. <clears throat> You've got ricin's toxicity here is forty milligrams. That is forty one thousandths of a gram per minute per meter squared. And most of us are about like 1.8 meters squared in terms of our body surface area. So we're talking about in a minute, if you have an 80th, <clears throat> 80 one thousandth or 8 one hundredths of a paperclip of ricin in your system over the course of a minute. The antidote to ricin has been right. kind of developed by... Yeah, by the military in the UK, although it still hasn't been tested on humans. They've only used it on mice. Uh, similarly, with a U.S.-developed antidote, um, 
it's basically an antibody-rich blood mixed with ricin because in low doses, some of the ricin is inactivated by the stomach. This is why we could get away with taking castor oil for years and we're not all dead. But in the concentrations of actual poison, uh, there's really not a lot you can do. You give supportive treatments, but there really is not a good working antidote. So it's mostly hoping that people survive by giving them ventilation or... And um, first, the diagnosis is a bit tough because, as you said, Josh, depending on the route, um, this is a poison which just shuts down your body's ability to make proteins that we need, and the cells just start to die. So, you know, it's a really kind of non-specific set of symptoms. You just get really sick wherever the ricin hits and you start to, you know, waste away. So, you know, if you have something, for instance, like ingestion, where the poison just has to make its way through your system, and hopefully there's not enough to really destroy a lot of organs before it gets out, you basically just have to sustain the person until the ricin makes its way out of the person's system. And then you can maybe give them charcoal, for ingestion to absorb and kind of soak up the remaining ricin that's in the gastrointestinal tract uh, while you wait. So, um, yeah. Absolutely right. fascinating about this is you mentioned earlier, Santosh, just eight castor beans can be fatal. <laughs> right? And these are small. That's like a dose of table salt. And most acute poisoning in humans who are not on episodes of Breaking Bad tends to result from ingestion of, you know, 5 to 20 beans. However, the survival rate of ingesting a bean is 98%. Nice. Because it's not fatal unless the bean is thoroughly chewed. This is why children and animals tend to be more commonly poisoned, whereas adults, who we tend to just sort of rush through our meals. So if you accidentally take down a castor bean or two, as long as you're not chewing it, the very intentional manufacture. So, you know, in order to get it out of the bean, you really have to chew it. In order to distill the ricin out, you know, you really have to work at it to get that waste product, like you said, and separate it from the oils. So it is a really deliberate act. That being said, though, once it's distilled or 22 micrograms per kilogram of body weight from injection or inhalations. So we're talking about 1.78 milligrams for the average adult, or you can say a thousandth. This is the kind of poison that I think famously was actually loaded into the tip of an umbrella. Um, and uh, Grigory Markov, the Bulgarian dissident, um, was, uh, you know, uh, go, you know, kind of walking along and, um, you know, he just kind of poked someone with an umbrella and it fired a little tiny pellet into the leg. And uh, it was such a tiny little cut that the person who was poisoned didn't even uh, didn't notice. So it was, yeah, 1978 Bulgarian defector Vladimir Kostov uh, survived a ricin attack. And the reason for that is in the past, a ricin, when the ricin-laced pellet was removed from the small of his back, it was found that some of the original wax coating on the pellet was still attached. So only lucky, small amounts of ricin had leaked out of the pellet, producing symptoms 
but allowing yeah, his body to develop lucky. some immunity to further poisoning. So he was able to take down a large, yeah, a larger amount. Um, now, when we go back to if your wife hypothetically wanted to use this on you, how would she get her hands on it? <laughs> well, given Ryson's extreme toxicity and utility as an agent of, you know, chemical warfare, they were actually, they can't be used in weapon research. It, it would violate the Hague Convention of 1899, where it's prohibited to employ poison or poisoned arms. Similarly, World War One ended before we weaponized ricin. And World War Two, there were plans for mass production, but the end conclusion is that it was no more economical than using what we already had available. So it's really hard to limit because... So it's really hard to limit because it's just a castor bean. And the castor, you know, the castor plant is ornamental. You see them around the holidays, especially around Christmas. So I know you have a holiday coming up. I'm not sure if castor plants make an appearance during Diwali, but... <laughs> we do not. You might want to be on the lookout. You know, it's kind of weird. We have these ornamental plants like this that we think are really pretty you know, castor beans, and then, like, mistletoe. Mistletoe is, like, super poisonous, and we have it during the holiday. Poinsettias. <laughs> Poinsettias are, like, pure poison. And we're just like, they're so pretty because they're, they're you know, they look gorgeous. They're red because the plant is telling you, uh, this is your blood all over the floor if you come near me. It turns out a large majority of the Christmas plants are all terribly poisonous <laughs> like not biased you but you know what plants aren't terribly poisonous dr josh pumpkins uh, halloween no pumpkins are delicious but stop but stop poaching them for their spice people you're draining them and turning them all white yeah, no, <laughs> they aren't spice they aren't spicy there's no spiciness in pumpkins just have well, no, because people keep poaching them. Yeah. <laughs> Just have the pumpkins, and then you have an awesome Halloween, and then, you know, we, we don't have to worry about stupid, you know, you know, poisonous plants over the Christmas time. We just have yummy uh, the Halloween plants. <laughs> well, we will, we will move on because we're in the wrong holiday. We'll talk about all the things that can kill you during Christmas in another month or so. I, I did mention one reason why it's so tough, and you, you mentioned it passingly, but I want to emphasize the real reason why, you know, rice is such a pain in the butt and why it's economically unfeasible and violates the hate convention is you are just as likely to poison the person who is making the poison as you are the person who's going to get the ultimate poisoning, meaning that while you're distilling the ricin out of there, you're at a huge risk of just getting like a grain of salt, like just up your nose and inhaled and boom, you're done. Yeah, so you can imagine it would make you a much less effective poisoner if you poisoned yourself as well as your intended victim. Right, unless you pull like a Wesley Dread Pirate Roberts thing like in The Princess Bride. Mm. I spent many years building up an immunity to iocane powder. I, I will say, though, that we have discussed, I believe, trying to create immunity to poison in a previous episode. 
Um, and I think our conclusion was you really can't do it. And as as whimsical as the Princess Bride is, that's not really something you can do. Yeah, you can build up some degree of immunity that may mildly delay the symptom onset, but you cannot make your body ignore the physiological effects of the poison. Now, as we move on from ricin, I feel that we should close out with another uh, much more common household poison, but maybe not one that you necessarily think of as a poison. And in fact, this, this last one on our list is often shows up in a certain kind of movie, usually as a goofy prank. Like, ha ha ha, you know what would be fun? Poisoning someone. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Whatever happened to Vince Vaughn anyway? He was in so many funny movies. And then... First off, I say poisoning someone and you immediately go to Vince Vaughn? Hmm. No, no, because I was thinking of, like, the poisoning scene in Wedding Crashers. Is that what you're referring to? And you are absolutely right. That is what I'm referring to. But I think it's very interesting that I say poison and your mind immediately provides Vince Vaughn. <laughs> no, no, because I mean, that, that's like a funny poisoning incident that have, which is outside of some of the other. Santosh, poisoning isn't funny. <laughs> No, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> For those of you who had not seen the 2005 movie Wedding Crashers, starring Owen Wilson and Vince Vaughn, there is one particular scene where in order to get revenge or get somebody out of the way for a short period of time, the two of them think it would be absolutely hilarious to put a couple drops of Visine into a drink, which would induce a hilarious case of diarrhea. <laughs> it was that in the movie, not not in real life, but like in the movie, uh, that was a very awesome poop joke kind of scene that happened. If we could ask Ben Stein, aside from getting the red out, how does a formula that we trust enough to routinely drip into our eyes suddenly becomes so dangerous that it can induce, well, either hilarious movie diarrhea or actual serious real-life abdominal pain and death. <laughs> yeah, i.e. don't do this, people. How many times have we said during the poisoning episodes, please don't do any of these things? Not enough, I'm guessing. I just, I well, the problem is we kind of go on tangent because we're, like, laughing about how funny it was in a movie or, like, how you know, kind of maybe cartoonishly. So we have to kind of reinforce that we're being serious yeah. now. Don't poison people. So <laughs> the active ingredient in products like Visine and Red Eye and, you know, the entire stoner catalog is a compound called tetrahydrazoline. And it's known, it's a family of compounds that chemically are known for relaxing or constricting blood vessels. So if they relax blood vessels, they tend to end up in medications used to reduce blood pressure. This does include tetrahydrozoline. Tetrahydrozoline. Sorry, tetrahydrozoline. Thank you. God, that was so hard to say. You can actually shrink it. Uh, you can just say tetrazoline, 
and that's also a recognized name internationally. Tetch, visine often goes into nasal sprays or in eyedrop formulas. And this is not a simple blood vessel squeeze. It actually changes the way that the compounds bind to receptors in your sympathetic nervous system. So when, they, when they're used as directed, they mostly constrict blood vessels in the eye. And that's what gives you that clear-eyed look. You know, all those red eyes just seal right on up. Uh, and then come back later. But internally, they can also, you know, such as when they're swallowed, they can also induce constriction of the blood vessels that result in rapid heartbeat as your heart tries to force the same amount of blood through smaller vessels, nausea, blurred vision, drowsiness, convulsions, and mild coma that could alternate with periods of thrashing and hyperactivity. Whoa! So... This is all poisoning uh, the peripheral nervous system more than anything else uh, because rather than the nerves reacting, or I shouldn't say nerves, but the end organs such as blood vessels reacting appropriately to circulating, you know, epinephrine, norepinephrine and all these other things which bind to these receptors and tell blood vessels and other organs to act a certain way, they become numb to this signal. Now, aside from the wedding crashers, which is probably the best-known example of this in a film, there were several cases around the U.S. even in the last few years. There was an Ohio man arrested for sending his father to the hospital by putting two full bottles of Visine into his milk. And these are very right. small bottles. Keep in mind, you know, like, they, you, they're tiny. The box they comes in is big, but the actual package itself is tiny. Or a Pennsylvania woman who'd been sneaking Visine into her boyfriend's drinking water for almost three years. Once again, there's no iocane powder effect nope. with, uh, with Visine. It'll just keep making you sick every time. When you, look, when you look at the material safety data sheets, and Santosh, please hold yourself back. I know you're already just very excited <laughs> about to say lab things. According to the safety sheets, the LD50 of... Toxicity in mice is about 345 milligrams per kilogram. By comparison, the lethal dose 50%, the LD50 of cyanide in mice, is 5 milligrams per kilogram. So you see, you do actually need a lot of visine to kill somebody. And that difference means that while people who have it, who swallow it, will very frequently end up in the hospital and very sick. Right, which Most is, of them tend I to guess why, stuff. you know, when you saw like a few drops going into Bradley Cooper's wine, it was conceivable to think that he'd have a really, really bad time on the toilet and get better. But for those of you who are thinking of pulling some version of that prank after seeing it in the film, the much more likely outcome is that he would end up hospitalized for several days. You guys out there with, again, pets and little kids, if you see any of them with this, you know, the, the little Visine bottle in your mouth or, you know, tasting it or anything like that, um, do call Poison Control. Now... If then, and you know what, that brings us to a great point, Santosh. We've covered a lot of poisons over these two episodes, and as much fun as we've had with them, what should somebody do if they've actually found to have swallowed or been given any of these poisons? There are plenty, plenty of local ones, and you guys can Google wherever you are, but there's a national number as well, and it's really easy to remember. It's 800 222 one two 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 
and it's going to stay that number and it's going to be toll free forever. Um, so even before you dial someone like 911, um, where the paramedics would come, poison control would be even more helpful, especially if you knew what you ingested to kind of give you instructions on what to do immediately, whether or not you should go to the hospital or seek help, and then what you should do, you know, once you get to the hospital. And Josh, I don't know about you, but there are so many things, you know, in terms of toxic chemicals out there that can cause really bad pathology, either by intentional ingestion or by accidental exposure. Um, And you can't memorize them all. And the truth of the matter is we as physicians, often when we get a poisoning case, we will do our kind of ABCs and take care of you right then and there in the emergency room. But subsequently, we will also get poison control on board to make sure our therapy is guided by experts. Right. Now, if you do have to call poison control, what sort of things are they going to be asking you? Because, you know, in the heat of the moment, you may not instantly be thinking of this. So we're going to give you a primer to get you ready. So when you call up poison control, try and have the following information ready or easily accessible. Obviously, you want the person's name, their age, their address, their telephone number, and their weight. You know, basic descriptional data, because a lot of these poisons, as we said, the dose makes the poison. So if you know someone's weight, this is one of the times when being a little bit on the huskier side may work to your advantage. (laughs) And uh, we measure a lot of these things in terms of lethality, uh, by like milligrams per kilogram, which is awesome if you're in metric and if you're stuck here in the United States, hell, 2.1 pounds to the kilogram, I guess. Now, you also want to know the agent that was ingested. So if you have the package with you when you call, that's great. Um, the amount of the substance that was swallowed or spilled on the skin. And, you know, you may not know that. So if you don't, that's fine. But if you can... Try and estimate a teaspoon, a cupful, a handful, anything like that. The person's current condition and symptoms, as well as the amount of time that has passed since the agent was ingested or inhaled. Again, if you know it. Now, back in the past, we used to tell people to use Ipecac or castor oil to induce vomiting. And that is – and that is – no longer recommended. You do not want people throwing these things up because a lot of the poisons can awfully can often be very caustic and cause as much or more damage being vomited up as they did going down. So it's always better to just call poison control rather than try and force somebody to vomit things up. Yeah, this used to be guideline even in the emergency room. Uh, You know, we would see it and we had to study it for a long time, this practice, to see if it was helping or not helping. And I think, Josh, more often than not, we found that inducing vomiting either mechanically or using something like Ipecac was really just not useful. So the recommendation has gone away entirely. What we're telling you guys this now because occasionally you might find what's called an emetic or a, you know a vomiting inducing substance like in someone's house or something or more than likely an older person who will say oh make them throw up you should immediately squash that idea and say no that's not how we do things anymore exactly so 
what do we do in the hospital? Well, we may use activated charcoal, which binds ingested poisons so they're not easily absorbed. We may use lavage, which involves putting a stomach tube down into the digestive tract to remove the contents, hopefully before too much poison has been digested or absorbed. Um, some poisons, you can increase the alkalinity of the urine and make them react and be urinated out. But a lot of them, if the poisoning is really that bad, may even require dialysis. Oh, wow. Okay, so we're we're talking about uh, ethylene glycol, perhaps, or oxalic acid, which can crystallize in the urinary tract. Um, so we want to actually get it out of the bloodstream before it can, you know, precipitate in the kidney, uh, for, as an example. So dialysis basically means you take an external kidney, um, and you hook up that machine, and you take the blood out of someone, you filter it, and then you put it back into the person. That's dialysis. Exactly. Now, that wraps up our, our episode on modern poisons and the conclusion of, at least for now, our poisoning series. I feel like I need to keep this theme going with our Just the Tips. Remind me, Santosh, where have I sent our listeners thus far? Oh, you sent them to get uh, poisoned, Josh. Well, I, I, let's see. We, we've sent them to get poisoned in Chernobyl, poisoned in Ireland. I, I guess I should keep the theme going for our for our Halloween ones. Awesome. So, yeah, we're going all the way over to the uh, across the pond to England, um, the town of Allenwick, A L N W I C K in Northumberland in England, and right by the Allenwick Castle. They have a big, beautiful garden. The garden dates all the way back to 1750. The third Duke of Northumberland there was a plant collector, and he brought seeds from just all over the world. It has one particular space, which was added in 2005, with big, intimidating gates and a skull and crossbones, and the words... These plants can kill. <laughs> if you get to go in there, you're going to be taken on a guided tour. Um, and you're going to be kind of kept very close eye on. You're going to be told not to go near some plants, not to inhale close to some plants, certainly not to touch or taste anything. And you're going to get to see strychnine. You're going to see, see hemlock from our first episode. You will see uh, Ricinus communis, which is the plant which uh, harbors the ricin toxin. Um, you'll see foxglove, uh, from which you can make digitalis. Atropa belladonna, where atropine comes from, previously called deadly nightshade. Um, and they're really there for education, to teach you about what these poisons are. You do have to ask the gardeners there for permission in order to go. There are people who have been walking by plants and who have passed out and who've needed assistance there, then and there because they do have some of the other poisons which, even though they're not deadly, they will make you faint. Now, if you would like to prepare just a little bit before you go wandering carefree through a permission garden, <laughs> you can head on over to the Natural History Museum of Utah, which is currently where the exhibit The Power of Poison is. 
from October 15th until April 16th of this year. It's been a traveling exhibition, and it allows you to do a couple things. One is to explore the Choco Forest of Colombia, where Poison in Nature shows you how golden poison arrow frogs, Brazilian wandering spiders, toxic caterpillars, and paralyzing vines all use poison in their daily lives. Then you can move on to Poison in Myth and Legend, where you get to be transported to a time when those familiar with poisonous plants were considered witches and magicians and interact with an enchanted book of botanical knowledge, enchanted because it's computerized and has animations, And finally, in Villains and Victims, some of history's most notorious poisonings are examined and solved. You get to be presented with a real-world poisoning from the 1830s and follow the scientific methods used by investigators at the time to solve the crime. And you can take on the role of detective and solve three other cases by yourself, linking various toxins and poisonous creatures to your victim's symptoms. Oh my god, that sounds like so much fun! So go be a Victorian detective and use the knowledge from this show for the purposes of good and justice. (laughs) Um, So previously, I guess this was in New York City at the American Museum of Natural History. This is a traveling exhibit. So I guess we'll hear more as it moves to different natural history museums around the country. That's it for this week. Next week, we'll be back with one of my favorite episodes of the year, which is our annual Halloween episode. As always, we love your comments, questions, concerns, and feedback. So please leave us messages on Facebook, on Squarespace, wherever you listen to and download podcasts. We are there waiting to hear from you. Links are in the show notes. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from my co-hosts and friends. Our theme music is by Rachel Leisure. If you would like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links on where you can do that are also included in the show notes at the bottom. And until next time, as always, happy travels. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. 
Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.